This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, I'm in London, and as you might imagine, the broadsheets and tabloids are chock-a-block with coverage of Prince George Alexander Louis of Cambridge, the firstborn to the Duke and Duchess, and future heir to the British throne. The coverage is, as you would expect, gushing, proving that even a gold easel and a piece of paper transported across town by a jaguar can have even more impact than a tweet. But certainly, Twitter took it over from there. But we're not going to talk about that today. No, today we go back to the Aspen Ideas Festival to pick up where we left off two weeks ago, making room for our special show with Mark Leibovich last week, the author of This Town. We pick up with our series of conversations against the glorious backdrop of Ajax Mountain in Aspen, Colorado. Today we sit down with one of the mainstays of political journalism, Ron Brownstein, National Journal's editorial director, author of six books, and a two-time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. I've worked in several presidential campaigns of the many that Ron's covered, and while I try to focus on the theatrics, Ron generally sticks to the numbers. In our conversation, you'll be amazed, as I was, of his mastery of the percentages that decide the outcome of elections. Then, we start looking forward to the upcoming presidential contest. Yes, 2016. We'll be talking with Shelley Porges, a former State Department official and lifetime entrepreneur and marketing pro who today is the co-chair of the National Finance Council of the Ready for Hillary PAC. As you all should know, the super PAC is, by law, unaffiliated with the former Secretary of State, New York Senator, and First Lady, but it's nonetheless working to establish resources and an organization that can be put in place to support a return to the campaign trail of the woman who put 18 million cracks in the glass ceiling back in 2008. I hadn't met Shelley before Aspen, but she was pretty prominent at the festival, trying to build support for her organization. We don't know yet whether Hillary is ready to run, but there are plenty of people, including Shelley, who are ready for Hillary. But first, let's start with our conversation with Ron Brownstein. Sitting here with Ron Brownstein, the political director of the National Journal, uh, uh, one of the icons of political campaign reporting that I've been reading since the beginning of my days, trailing around Paul Simon in New Hampshire and then Mike Dukakis around the country and then uh, going into the wilderness and returning for Bill Clinton for about six years. And Possibly Ron, since the beginning of time, yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> when was the, what's the first campaign you covered? Uh, the first one I really covered was 84. Uh, and uh, it was actually my first stint at National Journal before I went to the LA Times and then came back uh, about six years ago. And uh, I was a junior reporter there, and Michael Wines, uh, who was at National Journal, left to begin what has been now a 30-year career at the New York Times, and I was plugged in to replace him as one of our reporters on the primary uh, season. I did a pretty good job. I became the general election principal reporter and never looked back. Were you a before '84? Were you a reader of Johnny Apple and sure. anyone else? That who yeah. were your icons coming in, and, and what was it like then to be on the bus with them? 
Well, I was, um, I didn't really envision, I didn't imagine that I was going to be a political reporter. I didn't have a special uh, desire to be a political reporter. Um, I know I wanted to write about policy and politics, and I think I probably, uh, Halberstam, David Halberstam yeah. was probably more of my, my icon than any of the of the daily reporters, because uh, the powers that be and the best and the brightest for me were kind of books that synthesized, you know, the combination of economic power and political power and social change and really kind of put the whole thing together. And that has always been what I have tried to do. You know, I've never been the best guy at uh, revealing what's going to happen next or kind of the inner workings of the campaign or who's stabbing who. Um, my strength, such as it has been, has always been around building a box and kind of explaining how what's happening fits into what has come before and what else is going on now, what are kind of the larger trends that shape the day to day. And that, that really has been kind of the North Star of the way I've approached politics for Wow, almost 30 years now, uh, has been always that I believe that we, at, in the press corps, we tend to overemphasize the immediate, the tactical, and underemphasize what I think is really more important, the long-term structural forces that have much more impact on everything, on the way campaigns turn out, the way legislative fights turn out, uh, the way political careers turn out. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. When Ronald Reagan said he would not exploit for political purposes his opponent's youth and inexperience, that had an immediate effect on that race, didn't it? Yeah, I guess. But, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan, maybe it got him from 57 to 59. <laughs> uh, that was, you know, that was pretty well baked by, uh, you know, the, the underlying trends in the electorate. I mean, Reagan, I mean, it was really, you know, if you kind of think, about, I, I can kind of think about my career almost dividing uh, in half um, from 68 to 88. Six presidential elections, Republicans won the popular vote in five out of six, averaged over 400 electoral college votes. They averaged a landslide over those 20 years. And I started covering it toward the tail end of that Reagan-Bush uh, era in which they basically consolidated and only slightly expanded the coalition that Nixon sketched in 68, initially by Wallace fissuring the Democratic vote. By 72, he had moved those blue-collar whites into the Republican coalition and those Southern evangelicals. And then Nixon, uh, I'm sorry, then Reagan consolidated it and Bush, you know, was able to maintain it. The second half of my career really has been, and you know, in, in many ways, I spent a lot of time covering Bill Clinton in '92, and that's when the second half of my career began. Which is because since '92, the Democrats have now won the popular vote in five out of the past six presidential elections. Somewhat obscured by the asterisk election of 2000, when Gore won the popular vote and lost the presidency. But nonetheless, I mean, this is not—you don't win the popular vote five out of six times by accident. It's not always because the candidates are better or because the campaigns are better. It is because there are underlying shifts in the allegiances of the voters. Uh, and I believe that, uh, you know, what, what we have seen under Obama is much like from Nixon to Reagan, we have seen a further evolution, consolidation and expansion of the initial coalition that Clinton laid out in 92 and 96. But if you think that maybe Clinton broke the fever with the assistance of Ross Perot, but if, the, if then you look at the matchups, 92, 96, maybe put an asterisk on 2000 because sort of as politically nimble actors, they were somewhat mm -hmm. equal. Yes. Uh, but then 04 and 08. Is it also possible that in an age of increasing importance of the media that the better actor on stage has been victorious as well? You know, um, I, I tend to – so I'm a structuralist, right? So I tend to think – I mean, candidates obviously matter, but I don't think they are the – they are the single most important factor. I mean, I think that they tend to embody competing worldviews that uh, are either are or are not connecting 
with uh, the electorate. You know, no matter how good a candidate Walter Mondale was in 1984, the Democratic Party by that point was selling an agenda that was not a majority agenda. And I think Republicans face the same reality. I mean, you look at 2012, Mitt Romney won a larger share of white voters than Ronald Reagan did in 1980. And he lost. And in fact, he won as large a share of white voters as any Republican challenger has ever won, including Eisenhower in 52, Bush in 88, were both about where Romney was at 59%. But when you lose 80% combined of a minority population that is now 28% of the electorate, more than double what it was in 1992 when Clinton was first elected, you have a structural problem. There, you know, Romney compounded it with things like self-deportation and the way he ran in the primary. Uh, but I believe that, you know, what, what we saw in 2012 was the Republicans reaching kind of a demographic dead end. That, you know, the, 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 it, was, it was a demonstration that the current coalition, even pushed almost to the max, just is not big enough anymore to win at the presidential level. House is a very different story. They can hold the House with this coalition. Uh, and I think the Senate, as you kind of look at the competing coalitions, uh, is oriented. Its natural mean is to be somewhere very close to 50-50, which leaves us with a very challenging situation as a country. A Democratic advantage at the presidential level, a Republican advantage at the House level, a Senate that's more often than not is going to be very close to 50-50, and the two sides having enormous difficulty agreeing on anything. Uh, I want to get to some of the th- uh, conversations that you moderated here at the Aspen yeah. uh, Ideas Festival in a second. One of the people that you talked to was Nate Silver. Um, and I can't remember how Stuart Stevens or Mitt Romney phrased their experience on election day, whether they were dumbstruck or thunderstruck by the result. But it, se- you know, is that for popular consumption of his supporters? Or in your reporting and conversations, do you think they even convinced themselves that on that day they might have a shot? By all indications, they ordered fireworks on Monday. So either they were doing a very good job of putting on a stiff upper lip for the campaign, or they genuinely believe they were going to win. And I think it really goes to what, I, what I'm talking about, is whether you believe we are living through kind of a fundamental evolution of the electorate, move, a, a realigning of different components of the electorate that has a lasting effect, or do you believe that we are kind of living through individual incremental campaigns that have no connection to the next? What they believe, what they convince themselves was that because Obama in 2008 was such a unique figure as the first African-American ever nominated by either party, that he generated a level of turnout among minorities and millennials that was not going to be repeated in 2012, that it was a one-time anomaly. In fact, and as a result, in their polling, they basically projected that the white share of the vote was going to go back up. It's hard to get out of them exactly how much, but there's no – from my own reporting, there's no question they assumed that whites were going to be a larger share of the vote in 2012 than the 74 percent they were in 2008. Now, given the fact that Mitt Romney won 59 percent of white voters, which is a big number, you pick up that white share a couple points – probably, I don't know exactly what the number is – probably two, two to three points, and you win, right? So – that was the fundamental calculation. All these unskewed polls.com, all these conservatives saying, well, the polls are wrong because they assume a Democratic advantage in voter ID, and it's going to be more like 2004 when Republicans equals Democrats as a share of the electorate. When that happened in 2004, whites were 78 percent of the voters. There was no way there was no way for Republicans to equal Democrats as a share of the vote unless you assumed the white vote was going to be a higher share of what it was than it was in 2008. And in fact, as you know, it continued to drop. 
In 2012, it was 72%, according to the exit poll, down from 74, and continuing the pattern that in every election since 92, the white share of the vote has declined. And in fact, except for the Perot blip from 88 to 92, where because of the excitement about Perot, the white share went up, every election since 1980, the white share of the vote has declined. So I think they essentially built a model, and I don't, you know, look, Neil Newhouse, who was the main pollster, was not doing this for therapy. Okay, he was not doing this to make Mitt Romney feel better. He was, he's a serious, smart guy. And they believed that, um, you know, the, 20, the 2008 electorate could not be repeated. And by the way, the other point, the other group, you know, the, millennia, the, the youth share of the vote went up, which they also thought that was going to go down. So the minority vote and the, and the youth vote, each of which was preponderantly for Obama, went up. They thought it was going to go down. That's why they thought they were going to win. Did Dick Morris and Karl Rove believe it too, or were they performing their roles for their TV gigs? Can't get inside their head. Uh, you know, Dick Morris predicted a landslide. So, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to take him too seriously as a political analyst. I and mean, he certainly was a very effective political advocate in his day yeah, and, and operator. But, you know, I, I kind of think, you know, I, I was quoted in the campaign as saying, I thought the Rasmussen poll was not polling, it was therapy. Um, and, you know, I mean, a lot of the polling had this problem in various ways. I mean, the Gallup poll was interesting, right? Because the Gallup poll deservedly has gotten a lot of criticism for having Romney up quite a bit. But, you know, they weren't really that far off in how whites and non-whites would vote. Where they were really far off was because of their likely voter model, which they've been using since the 50s. It screened out a disproportionate number of minorities and young people. And the result was, you know, when they were putting up polls showing Romney ahead by five points, they were projecting an electorate that was almost 80% white, which it hasn't been since at least 2000. And, and I, you know, what I would say with that was it was a syllogism. The Gallup, a lot of this polling, the Rasmussen polling, the Gallup polling, is a syllogism. If the electorate is 80% white, yeah, I'll grant you, Mitt Romney is probably going to win. But what are the odds of that? And as you uh, tweeted out, the problem only gets harder to try and assemble a electoral victory if you try and factor gender into that, too, in 2016, yes. which is if, there is if the former Secretary of State runs, uh, Obama in 2012 lost uh, to Romney by a greater margin than anyone since Mondale in yeah. 84. Among white women. Therefore, Hillary right. might do better. Right. So what's really interesting about this is that, you know, I, I quoted uh, someone in the Romney campaign in the summer of 2012 saying, this is the last time anyone will ever try to do this. And by this, he meant assemble a national majority almost solely with the votes of whites in a rapidly diversifying country. You know, we are a country that is now 37% non-white overall. Mitt Romney still relied on whites for almost 90% of his votes. And I think the immediate reaction of the Republican Party was, you know, you're looking at reality here. I mean, you know, Mitt Romney wins more white voters than Ronald Reagan in 1980, and you lose. What does that tell you? You've got to do something else. But what's interesting is that tide is starting to roll back. And what you're seeing is a growing argument from conservatives who don't want to do immigration reform, who oppose immigration reform, making the argument that, no, 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 Uh, We don't really need to improve among minorities. The way we're going to win is by increasing turnout among whites and increasing our share among whites. And, you know, Carl Rove here the other day with my colleague James Bennett of The Atlantic, you know, was asked, you know, uh, James asked him, is that realistic? And he said no, because essentially you look at the math. Um, a Republican nominee would probably have to win if, if the Democrat holds the 80 percent among minorities they've been consistently winning and their share of the vote goes up along the same trajectory he's been doing for the last 20 years before Obama and potentially after him. The Republican nominee would have to win somewhere between 63, roughly 63 percent of the white vote, which is what Ronald Reagan got in his reelection landslide, the biggest landslide in modern times. And to your point, 
you know, Barack Obama only won 39% of white voters overall. He only won 42% of white women. There is a lot of room to grow if you have a nominee that is Hillary Rodham Clinton. I mean, 42% is a low number. So you would have Republicans needing to increase their overall white vote at a time when you would have to say she would have reasonably good odds of doing better than 42 among white women, which is a pretty low number. Ron Brownstein, you won't get much of an argument on that from me, yeah. uh, having worked with uh, Mrs. Clinton for many years uh, and you know, personally uh, struggling a little bit with there is a, an enormous amount of talent in the Democratic Party that wants an opportunity to, and to, uh, to establish a new generation. On the other hand, there is a glass ceiling that is not yet mm-hmm. fully uh, penetrated, and uh, she's in the best position to do that. Well, it's hard to see. I mean, I was I was doing a panel last night with uh, this week with Nate Silver and Mark Penn. And, you know, Mark, who, of course, worked for her and was a very controversial figure in that campaign and was kind of, you know, superseded at the end by Jeff Guerin. You know, he wouldn't predict he was rooting for her to run. And Nate Silver, I think, kind of echoed what I think is a broad sense that if she does run, uh, it's unlikely there will be a serious mainstream competitor. I mean, you could imagine someone in the primary. You can imagine a, a dean, a dean or on. someone like that. You know, someone that make a point to kind of raise the flag a Bradley, for a Bradley. Yeah, example. right. But whether you're going to get like a you know a serious sitting governor or something like that, I mean, that's a it's tough. First of all, you know, one fact of the gender gap is that a Democratic primary electorate overall is probably close is, is pretty close to sixty percent women now. It's fifty eight percent in two thousand and eight. It would probably be over sixty percent by twenty sixteen, um, and so that's an advantage. And all of the other advantages, in particular, the opportunity to make history. On the other hand, she's not going. You know, she's going to be what sixty nine years old. Uh, you know, that obviously is going to have to resolve any questions about her health before she does run, and certainly reassure people if she does. Um, so it's not. Uh, it's not a certainly walk all the way through the general election, but in the primary, it is right now hard to see somebody really giving her a, a heavy a heavy lift. Part of me wishes for the Clintons that uh, they, they certainly are a great economic engine for themselves mm. right now. Uh, the, the notion that Mrs. Clinton could be inaugurated at age uh, 69 or 70 mm. and then serve eight years doesn't leave a lot of time yeah. on, on the backside. She should fully enjoy it. She should anoint a Kirsten Gillibrand or someone else who she really has, has a great affinity for but maybe it's time to try it herself as well. Well, you know, it is interesting. I mean, you know, the one thing that is striking is, uh, you know, I, as I say, I, th- I believe at the presidential level today, Democrats have a demographic advantage and in what I've called their coalition of the ascendant, uh, which, by which I mean that the groups that they are doing best with are growing as a share of the electorate. So it's minorities, it's millennials, and it's college-educated whites, especially mm-hmm. women. Uh, and so that is an advantage for them. Uh, Republicans have to disrupt the dynamic. The, another way of saying it is the, in the presidential races, the possession arrow points toward the Democrats. The Republicans have to change something in order to win. There are 18 states that have voted Democratic in at least the past six consecutive elections. That's the most states they've won that often ever in the history of the modern party system since 1828. So they have advantages, but their big kind of uh, uh, vulnerability is they don't really have a great presidential bench at the moment. You know, you get past Hillary Rodham Clinton, you're looking at Andrew Cuomo, uh, Martin O'Malley, uh, maybe Gillibrand, Mark Warner, perhaps, although it kind of feels like that's come and gone. Conceivably, John Hickenlooper from Colorado, where we are. You know, the Republican side, you know, Marco Rubio, Chris Christie, uh, Paul Ryan, possibly, Jeb Bush, certainly. They, they, have, they have more, uh, they may have more compelling personalities, but what they've got 
is, I believe, an agenda and a, a message that simply, like the Democratic message in the 80s, is no longer a national majority. And they are very reluctant, as we're seeing in the debate in the House, to kind of move away from that. And it's going to be a big challenge for all of them in 2016, the, the, the candidates during the primaries. So, Ron Brownstein, political director of National Journal, you come to a, an event like the Aspen Ideas Festival. The thing is chock-a-block with different kinds of commentary. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, the three panels that you're moderating and or you have moderated. First, uh, obviously, a very uh, compelling uh, question, where does Obama go from here? Yeah. So what was the conclusion of that conversation? Where does Barack Obama go from here? I think that, you know, if there was a conclusion from, the, from it, it is that the prospects of moving the House Republicans to work with him on pretty much anything beyond immigration is limited. I mean, the basic reality, I mean, from my point of view, and I think generally on the panel, and what that means is that he is going to be two, probably going to be doing three things. One is doing whatever he can through executive action, and there at the top of the list is implementing the health care bill and the uh, speech on carbon last week. Second, like all second-term presidents, he's going to try to do a lot on foreign policy. Uh, but third, uh, and this was in particular E.J. Dionne was arguing, who was on the panel, that he needs to be really framing the debate for 2016, even laying out an ambitious agenda to deal with the core problem of our time, which is the slowdown in the growth of the living standards for average Americans and the decline in upward mobility, which I think is the core economic problem of our time that transcends the downturn, uh, that he's going to be doing all three of those things. Uh, but it is very difficult, you know, that, that basically the Republican Party is going to have to make a decision about whether it wants to play. And I think they're, they're, the choices the House Republicans are making are not cost free in terms of 2016. For example, if they kill the immigration bill, which is possible. I mean, obviously, that is an enormous, I think, a headwind for any Republican nominee uh, in 2016, because I believe that the idea that you're going to win simply, as I said, by pumping up the white vote is, is a fantasy. They, they are almost certainly going to have to improve their vote among minorities. But they can do that and still hold the House majority. I mean, the House, the Republican House, is you know, largely segregated, and I use that word advisedly, because of the districts from these demographic trends. Eighty percent of them are in seats that are more white than the national average. So I think you know, people, I think the feeling was that you know, his principal opportunity is going to be through executive action, limited in some cases, as those are, but certainly implementing the health care bill is no small matter. Uh, and, that, and that whether you see broader action on anything else, including uh, immigration uh, and, and probably the budget as the big ones, uh, is less dependent on what he does than on the internal debate inside the GOP. Because don't forget, only 15 House Republicans are in districts that Obama carried. Only 10 House Democrats are in districts that Romney carried. We've hit almost complete sorting. So, you know, very few of those Republicans feel like they have anything to fear at home from opposing him. And, you know, the, the only real source of leverage is kind of the broad calculation of party leaders that include John Boehner and Karl Rove and others, yeah, and others that they need to reposition themselves in order to be better uh, suited, better footed uh, to compete, especially for the presidency in 2016. And I don't think, you know, everything we're seeing is the House Republicans going in the opposite direction. They were more open to that in November and December. And as time goes on, they're reverting closer to uh, or reverting back toward a more kind of a rigid and fundamentalist agenda. Ron Brown, Sr., next panel was an uh, interesting dichotomy of the man of the moment of big data, Nate Silver of 538, and uh, the storied pollster of Bill Clinton, mm -hmm. Bill Gates, and Hillary Rodham Clinton, Mark Penn. The title of the, of the conversation was uh, The Science of Prediction. Any, any 
science come out of that conversation? Yeah, you know what's really interesting is, you know, as I, you, you know your question to me um, almost paraphrased my first question to Nate Silver because he is identified with the idea that with enough data and a good enough algorithm, you can predict anything, not only the presidential race, but how many titles LeBron James was likely to win, which is the subject of a recent column. You know, but the subtitle of his book uh, is Why So Many Predictions Are Wrong which is actually, and his view was that the pre- presidential, poli- presidential campaigns in the general election, which I certainly believe as well, are actually one of the things we can predict best. Yeah. And that we have made really very little progress on a lot of other things from earthquakes. Uh, you were talking about how, you know, earthquakes, even, even weather. In, uh, no, he put weather on the better trajectory. So his basic message was actually more restrained on that front. And, you know, uh, Mark Penn talked about that as well in terms of both the consumer and uh, political behavior. Um, And, you know, and I do think that, you know, uh, uh, as I say, I mean, one of the great, I think one of the great fallacies of journalism is that we act like the world starts anew every day, and especially every four years in the presidential campaign. And so we spend a lot of time writing about tactical maneuvers and tactical decisions and flubs and foibles and how the candidates look or sound, uh, when in fact, each campaign is really operating on a pretty substantial baseline that you're trying to nudge, usually very slightly, right? I mean, I pointed out, and you've been reading my tweets, I'm very impressed, but I pointed out in a tweet the other day in, in light of this big debate, you know what the total variation in the Democratic vote among white voters has been since 1988? 39% has been the low and 43% <laughs> has been the high. That's the total variation. Um, uh, and, you know, except for Bush in 04 and the two Perot races, the Democratic candidate has won between 78 and 82 percent combined among minority voters in every election since 1976. So, um, you know, it, it, it's, you know, we... we Elections matter. I mean, campaigns matter. Conditions matter. Candidates matter. But there are some basic, you know, there is there is some groundwork here that you're operating in. You're not drawing on a blank page to mix the metaphor. And I think, you know, what, what Nate does, you know, very well is try to kind of aggregate that history into very sophisticated analysis of the current polls. I mean, in a way, Nate Silver is kind of a, uh, you know, is an antibody or is sort of like he's a reaction to this incredible proliferation of polling. We're living through a varying quality. Uh, And what he's been able to do uh, quite effectively is kind of carve out a niche of someone who kind of takes all of this. Massive averager. Yeah, right. And, and, you know, but works it through with some other, you know, complex calculations and try to kind of figure out where we are. But I would just point out that, you know, it isn't only – and I'm sure he would be acknowledged. It's not only Nate's, it's not like some kind of, you know, special uh, gift from uh, heaven. You know, the famous story about the 2008 campaign. Talk about how stable uh, uh, electoral preferences can be. The famous story is that, you know, David Plouffe accidentally at one point emailed their internal spreadsheet. It, it was attached. I don't know what he did. Somebody emailed their internal spreadsheet to the press. To, I think it was Bloomberg. Uh, and it was, their, it was their projections going in who was going to win which state. And how many did they have right? 49 out of 50. That's right. So, you know, and, and you know, I just heard I was at a talk that Messina gave a few weeks ago, and and it only advanced from '08 too. I mean, the, yes, the, the 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 Obama summoned Messina to an event in in Milwaukee and said, "I just want you to I want to have at least one face to face talk with you before Election Day. I want you to give me the model, and I want you to tell me exactly how it's going to come out." And it pretty much came out as Jim you know, Jim Messina. It was to me that he kind of uh, revealed this prediction in March of 2012. Said, and this was, by my view, the single most important number in the election. He said the minority share of the vote was going to be 28 percent. 
which in one sense is not this hugely bold prediction in that it tracks, as I said, the historic trajectory since 92. On the other hand, it was at a moment where there was and continued to be all the way through this kind of broad counter view that said, no, no, no. 08 was this anomaly, and it's going to be 26 again or below. And given the intense, the intensity, which is another problem, you know, we haven't talked about for our country, of the racial polarization in voting, where Republicans are now winning 60% of whites and Democrats are winning 80% of non-whites, every point in that distribution between white and non-white share of the vote is enormously uh, significant. And of course, he was exactly right. That's what it was. It was 28, and, you know, they held to that belief. They're, they kind of structured, you know, and it wasn't only holding that belief. That was their goal, was to make that true. A modern highway system is essential to meet the needs of our growing population, our expanding economy, and our national security. We are accelerating our highway improvement program under existing state and federal laws and authorizations. But this effort will not, in itself, assure our people of an adequate system. This problem has been carefully considered by the Conference of State Governors and by a special advisory committee on a national highway program composed of leading private citizens. I have received the recommendations of the governor's conference and will shortly receive the views of the special uh, committee. Aided by their findings, I plan to submit on January 27th recommendations which will meet our most pressing national highway needs. So not only am I reading your tweets, but I also looked at the uh, recent tweet of Michael Beschloss. He put out a, a picture of Dwight Eisenhower in 1959 standing, cutting the ribbon on the extension to the George Washington Parkway and said that on this date that you and I are talking in 1956, uh, Eisenhower signed the Interstate Highway mm. Act. So as we talk about your third panel still to come, yes. a bit more of a stretch for Ron Brownstein. What are you going to talk about with uh, Transportation Secretary Ray LaHood? Well, not as much of a stretch as you would think, right? Because a lot of what I write about is how politics reflects changing demography and kind of cultural and economic changes. And I'm really interested in talking to him about whether we are seeing different choices emerge in the way people live. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, on the one hand, clearly we have all sorts of infrastructure needs. And, you know, we have all these mayors kind of trying, like Viragosa in L.A. and Rahm Emanuel in Chicago and uh, in Atlanta, developing really innovative local solutions, which we've actually just written about in National Journal. Did you see Bruce Katz's thing the other yeah, day? Yeah, well, he, he, spoke at, he spoke at the event that we did the other day. And so there is an issue. On the other hand, on the other hand, um, the amount of miles that were actually driven in 2012 was 10 percent lower than what the Energy Department had forecast only six years earlier. You know, we see the rise of zip cars. Uh, we see more digital shopping, online shopping or online kind of, you know, uh, surfing and using, using the computer to make decisions you might have previously gotten a car to do. And I'm kind of wondering, and, and also, you know, some evidence that both the retiring baby boom and the millennials are showing some preference for more dense, transit-friendly living. This is, by the way, a source of great debate between my colleague, Richard Florida in Atlantic City, who kind of sees the world evolving that way, and Joel Kotkin, who's a very smart guy, too, uh, out in uh, California, who basically argues that the entire world, uh, the, all of America wants to live in kind of like North Dakota with a T1 line and their own, uh, their own uh, 40 acres. So I'm mm -hmm interested in talking to him uh, about what, you know, how, how patterns of development may be shaping and what that means for federal transportation policy. By the way, I, politically, it matters too. Richard Florida and his team in Atlantic City did a fascinating exercise, which is not totally surprising, but they basically cal calculated a density line. 
you know, above a certain density of population, Democrats win the overwhelming mm-hmm. proportion of those communities, and below, they lose. It's worth noting, you know, President Obama won by what? Was it five million votes? Yep. Five, uh, almost, uh, you know, four points in the popular vote, and he only won 700 of the 3,100 counties in America. I mean, R- Mitt Romney won every county in America with a cow in it, you know? And so I'm interested in kind of talking to him about um, uh, whether the way, how we live is changing and whether federal transportation policy has to adapt to that. And the other thing, obviously, is as a Republican yeah. in a Democratic cabinet and as a former chief of staff for Bob Michael, who, invi- who embodied the pre-Gingrich vision of the two parties more or less working together, the minority party as the junior party to the majority party, Gingrich replaced that with kind of a parliamentary vision of you're the opposition party. You're not the junior partner. I'm interested in talking to him about just trying to work in this Washington. And didn't LaHood also preside over Clinton's impeachment trial? I do not know that. I think I think that's right. And uh, so it always struck me that whenever, like, Norm Mineta served, yeah. he was an, a Clinton appointee at the end of Clinton's term, but he, th- he stayed in for almost all of, if not all of, Bush's eight years. Mm-hmm. And then LaHood has served uh, uh, in transportation during Obama. It's uh, That is a bright spot, I think, the way... Uh, presidents can sometimes pick and get through uh, people of, the, of differing parties for their yeah. cabinet. Um, the, um, you know, it's tougher. I mean, it's tougher for it to have an, you know, tougher to have an impact. It's certainly uh, Kennedy, Roosevelt, the best example ever was Franklin Roosevelt bringing in um, Stimson as his secretary of war, who had been secretary of state uh, under, I think, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, and, um, and of course, uh, Frank Knox, who was the Republican vice presidential candidate in 1936, he brought him in as Secretary of the Navy as part of trying to build a broad consensus for going into war uh, in World War II. Uh, Kennedy had several. Um, it's gotten tougher. It's not really clear that anything really bridges this this divide. And it is the big challenge we face as a country. I mean, we have two coalitions that are almost exactly equal in size, that are utterly diametrical in their demographics, geographic ideology. They want very different things for the country. Uh, and yet neither one is in a position to overpower the other. So where are we? I mean, unless we're going to be talking about secession again, uh, we kind of have to find a way to mediate our differences that had not made itself apparent since, really, the Clinton impeachment. I mean, really, since then, with a few exceptions, no child left behind, which, of course, generated a lot of backlash, there's been very few examples where the parties have been able to work together. Last question, Ron Brownstein. It's difficult not to see that here at the Aspen Ideas Festival, Atlantic is a major uh, content partner of the festival. David Bradley Mm -hmm. uh, is here, as is so much of the talent assembled under the various brands of Atlantic Media. Yourself, people who've been on our show in the past, uh, the, uh, Matt Cooper, uh, James Bennett. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Fallows, uh, Jeffrey Jim Goldberg. Fallows, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg. I mean, Coates, yeah. These are people who've been on my show. What's it like ha- having really established your own personal brand for so many years at the Los Angeles Times, but mm-hmm. print media going the way print is going, but at least having this great roof that all this talent can work under? Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, we have, we have multiple brands uh, which include the Atlantic, National Journal, and Courts, our latest, which is a, which is an online-only business publications, and they all do different things, and they're all slightly different, and yet. I feel like there is a common thread that runs through them, which is they are all about trying to find a way to take a step back and look at the big threads that run through the choices that we face collectively. Uh, Not to get too highbrow about it, but basically, I mean, like everybody else, we're in there every day online, especially The Atlantic has a giant website, really vibrant. You know, we're in there kind of banging away on the news of the day. But where we are at our best and where I think that um, 
we contribute the most in the media ecosystem is, in fact, trying to make sense of all the dots, you know, and there are so many dots now. Uh, and in many ways, I feel like journalism is giving people more information and less understanding. It's just kind of overwhelming. We disaggregate the news. We kind of take it apart. Uh, and that is because that the Internet cable model almost demands that. It's, it needs to be fed. Uh, but I believe strongly, and I think our best journalism, and certainly the print versions of the Atlantic and National Journal fit this, where we are at our best is kind of explaining how the chaos you're living through every day really fits into larger trends shaping our society. Ron Brownstein, political director of National Journal, thanks so much for spending a little time with Thank us. Thank you. After the break, Shelley Porgus, co-chair of the National Finance Council of the Ready for Hillary PAC. History in the making. This is POTUS, Sirius XM 124. This is Josh King on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124, Polyoptics, and we're back at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado, with our conversation with Shelley Porgus, co-chair of the National Finance Council of the Ready for Hillary PAC. You and I have been enjoying a lot of uh, these talks at the Aspen Ideas Festival. How's it been for you? Uh, it's always fascinating. I've been here for several summers. I've been lucky enough to be here for a number of times, and it's, it's so stimulating and s- brings together so many diverse interests uh, on just a whole range of topics that are just fascinating. I've certainly noticed, Shelley, that uh, you have uh, asked a lot of questions at, at uh, these forums, and you are not shy about talking about your affiliation, Ready for Hillary Pack. Uh, what's been the reception for that idea here at the Aspen Ideas Festival? We are building a grassroots pack. It's, it's something that's really never been done before in the way that we're doing it. Uh, and uh, to build out support and the ground game for Hillary Clinton so that she can take the time to make the decision. I announced today that I'm forming a presidential exploratory committee. I'm not just starting a campaign, though. I'm beginning a conversation with you, with America, because we all need to be part of the discussion if we're all going to be part of the solution. And all of us have to be part of the solution. Let's talk about how to bring the right end to the war in Iraq and to restore respect for America around the world. How to make us energy independent and free of foreign oil. How to end the deficits that threaten Social Security and Medicare. And let's definitely talk about how every American can have quality, affordable health care. You've been on the Hillary uh bandwagons since 2006. That's correct. That's great. My background prior to 2006, I'd really never done anything political, but I had moved to Washington in 2005. And when she declared in 2006, um, I felt that this was really the, you know, the political campaign of my lifetime, having grown up, you know, during the 70s and during the women's lib era. Um, and also because I, I, I have so much respect for her as just a great leader. As I like to say, some leaders are born women, and she's certainly one of them. What were the nature of your businesses before you started? sort of stopped them and, and got on to, be, became both involved in politics and then government? Well, I started my career as a corporate executive, first with American Express and then with Bank of America. Um, in the uh, late 80s, I was a chief retail marketing officer at Bank of America when they were still headquartered in San Francisco uh, during a, ma- a major corporate turnaround. We had the largest corporate turnaround in American corporate history that was non-government-aided. Chrysler had been larger than us before that, but Chrysler had been government-aided. Moved from that to starting my first business, and the nature of five of the six businesses that I was uh, 
either launched myself or helped launch with partners um, were in the financial services space, as, as you might imagine, since that was my background. One was in the media space and had a lot of success in the boom-boom days of the tech boom, uh, and uh, five of them had successful exits. And, and your first moment... Uh, on the Hillary 08 campaign, what was what was that like? As you said, okay, sign me up. What did they put you? What, what did they have you do? The way it came about, I, I through my sister, who's a lawyer, a New York lawyer. Um, I got to meet the Mid Atlantic Finance Director for the campaign, and I offered my service. I said, you know, I've just sold my last of six businesses. I'm, you know, I've got the time on my hands. I've got, you know, some. Some good experience, I think. Uh, I've raised money for lots of other organizations, never done anything political. She put me on the finance committee, and my first act was uh, she invited, uh, other than that first gathering that led me to meet her, um, was uh, a finance council meeting where a lot of the traditional and very um, strong backers, of you know, Democratic backers, were, were part of that effort uh, in Washington. So I attended a meeting. And I attended a meeting, and it was the beginning of a very steep learning curve for me as to how is political uh, organization and fundraising done. Uh, it was obviously transformative in many ways. We were all very passionate about um, you know, the campaign, about Hillary Clinton as our next leader, um, as we are now. And uh, you know, we think her time has come now. I hugely value my time working for President Clinton, First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton, and my time in the White House. One thing that, frankly, I always struggled with was as I looked at what we were spending money on in the campaign, the stagecraft, the optics, the polling, the media. Uh, I, you know, you you come from a Bank of America, uh, Bank of America, and American Express background, marketing intensive. The old adage: uh, I know half my advertising doesn't work. I just don't know which half. You're raising so much money for Hillary Clinton across the primary process. The people are raising a huge amount of money for Obama. How did you sort of keep asking for money knowing that, you know, a lot of money is not going to be used as efficiently as it possibly might be used? Well, I mean, Josh, I think you realize, you know, and I can can certainly attest to the fact that the marketing game, as it were, has changed dramatically since I was in those corporate positions, most importantly because of social media, most importantly because of of our ability to track, connect um, to very targeted audiences. And what we're trying to do now with the Ready for Hillary pack is – at the moment, we're not raising those tens and hundreds of millions of dollars that would be necessary and will be necessary for a presidential campaign. We are currently building out the base. Our, our role right now is to prepare the ground for her to make a good decision so that, you know, you, I think you can understand, she has not been in a political position for over four years now. The database that she would have had then wouldn't really be relevant now for, for many reasons. Not that a lot of those people won't still and continue to support her, but just, you know, people's emails change, people's contact information changes. Um, so what we're trying to do is re-energize, build out that base, build out a volunteer network, and, and, and uh, you know, give her the space and the time to make a good decision So and know that, you know, she's not losing total ground by not starting right now. I'm, I was still really referring to 08 and, you know, okay, the, the massive expenditure in the primary campaign, right. basically to see who is going to, you know, uh, face off against uh, Mitt Romney in, in the summer. So, uh, you know, look, a lot of my friends worked for... Uh, Mrs. Clinton's campaign, a lot of my friends worked for Obama's campaign, and I just saw them, you know, throwing money at each other in terms of, of beating each other, and it was 
you know, I just said, why can't it, we? It, it's daunting. I mean, I think I, I, I can't say that doing this means that we all feel um, fantastic about the amount of money that it takes today to win a presidential election. But to uh, quote somebody on a panel the other day, and I don't want to miss, I don't want to attribute it to someone and make a mistake, so yeah. I won't, I won't say who I think it is. Um, and they said, you know, it used to be that we would spend more marketing a hamburger than we did marketing the president of the United States. And arguably, you know, those two de decisions have ma massively different impacts, right? So, so you know, at some level, um, whatever effort it takes to um, engage, you know, the electorate, uh, you know, Americans in, uh, in, in selecting a leader who will be their next leader, um, I think is warranted. So at some point, uh, we all know that Secretary Clinton's term in office is coming to an end. It's, uh, it's the fall of 2012. Uh, President Obama is reelected. When does Ready for Hillary begin to take shape? So Ready for Hillary was founded by two great um, uh, past supporters of Hillary, uh, and that is Alita Black, who's a professor at uh, George Washington University, and Adam Parkamenko, who's currently the executive director for Ready for Hillary. Uh, they, they had all along said, once the 2012 elections are over, we need to do something. We need to make sure that we do whatever we can to mobilize support so that if and when she makes her decision in this way, that, you know, the ground will be ready. And so Adam and Alita launched it in, well, they came together in January, shortly after the election. And in April, the PAC was formed. I joined it shortly thereafter when I left the State Department. And, uh, you know, we have had, uh, you know, results that far exceeded our expectations is all I can say. Well, let's let's look at the numbers. Uh, how many Facebook followers so far? So we have uh, 230,000 Facebook followers right now, which, you know, just to give one point of uh, reference, uh, you know, an organization we love and support tremendously and supports us in turn is um, Emily's List. Emily's List, which supports women candidates throughout and, and does a phenomenal job. Ellen Malcolm has come out to support us. Emily's List, to date, it's my understanding that they're at about 177,000 uh, Facebook followers. Um, and we hope and, and, and continue, you know, to believe that we'll work with them to help build their base as we're building our base because that, you know, that can only help. I mean, part of it, I, I want to point I want to make here is that we're building this super PAC to be a very big tent. I just came out of a session where I had uh, the opportunity to speak with a, uh, another, a woman, an older woman, who I've had a chance to meet through other uh, experiences over, over the years. And when a mutual friend said, hey, you know, Shelley's working for Ready for Hillary, she said, you know, I'm a registered Republican, she said, but I'm ready for Hillary. I said, you are welcome, you know, welcome and join us. So not only are we uh, reaching out to past Hillary supporters, of course, past Obama supporters. We just had uh, Claire McCaskill come out supporting us. You know, you may remember that Claire McCaskill was the first senator who supported President Obama when he uh, began his run. Um, but we do expect and have already seen support all, all around among independents, among Republicans as well. So that's what we're looking for. Also about uh, 64,000 Twitter followers as well. That's correct. Yeah, we have 64,000 Twitter followers and we have over 3,500 donors right now. And uh, we will be filing today our fuller uh, picture in terms of what we've done in terms of donations and, and what we've raised. I can't speak to it quite right now. What have you said so far about what you've raised? Have you been required to file yet? No, today's our first filing. Today's our first filing, and we will be issuing a report uh, at the end of July 
uh, as to, you know, to give fuller context to that. But uh, we have met our objectives. I, I did get an email yesterday. We had set objectives for ourselves in terms of what we were trying to accomplish. And again, remember, we have some very big money supporters uh, backing this effort, uh, a whole range of both political and, you know, um, business interests and, and, uh, and others, business supporters. But uh, we currently are not looking for those big dollars. Right now what we're trying to do is raise enough money to build out the organization, build out the ground game, but we are not at this point raising the kinds of dollars that will take to win a presidential election. Um, as an old marketer, uh, again from your American Express and Bank of America background, a little bit of the rap against Secretary Clinton as came out in Jonathan Martin's piece in the New York Times was the GOP's effort to sort of peg Mrs. Clinton on her age. And I look at sort of the, the branding so far of Ready for Hillary, the typeface, um, the name itself, Ready for Hillary. Is there just somewhat of an sort of old school look and feel and, and idea behind it versus something that needs to, as you and I have been seeing all these uh, meetings at the Aspen Ideas Festival, needs to be very hip, very digital, very... Well, I, I think I think that uh, you know I think that's an interesting observation, and I think that what you see now isn't all of what you will be seeing. So don't uh, don't judge us. I, I understand the first looks are you know lasting, but uh, there there's a lot coming up. Um, we have a whole strategy that will be unfolding both through social media and through other media eventually um, that I think will um, help you understand how we propose and how we are connecting with a younger audience. Uh, we definitely plan to target college campuses um, and both look, feel, messaging. Uh, we have some very interesting uh, folks from the entertainment world very interested in working with us. I think that that will help us, you know, bridge that, you know, what you identified as sort of a gap. Maybe, uh, you know, if, if it's a generational gap, then, you know, we would bridge it. I, I think that would help us bridge it. It was hard for me to fault Jim Messina based on the amount of money he raised through the sale of merchandise, but I still sort of looked askance a little bit at the celebrification or Hollywoodification of the Obama 2012 effort, Anna Winter, uh, all the uh, very uh, high-end jewelry and uh, and merchandise that, that they sold. But then Jim talked about the millions upon millions of dollars that they raised. Ready for Hillary is also now in the merchandise game. That's correct. We just, yeah, we just launched our store, so thanks for bringing that up, and we're very excited about it. I, I you know, it, that that is certainly one way to look at it, and revenue is certainly in one of our objectives. But as importantly, and I, I would argue more importantly, it's giving people a chance uh, to demonstrate their identification with what we're doing. I mean, people who are excited about Hillary running in 2016 want to show it. I mean, I can assure you of that from here. I have handed out many bumper stickers and whatever. While I've been here, not not just my business card, but also bumper stickers, and people when they you know when they're excited, when they're passionate about something, they want to show it, say, hey, this is what I'm passionate for, and that is one way to do it is to you know wear the merchandise, to you know put your bumper sticker on your car, to do whatever it takes to say you know this is this is what I'm for. And you I, I you know you mentioned that yes, I haven't been shy about associating. Now part of that is because you know the very first question I asked was uh, on on a segment on the future of the Republican Party. So to make it quite clear to the panelists. With the, of whom I asked my question, where I was coming from, I, I thought that that was a good opportunity. And as it turned out, it was because many people came up to me afterwards. But um, I, I think that is uh, one of our primary goals is to let others know, you know, it may seem early to some people, but a lot of people are ready for Hillary and they want people to know it. Okay. So that comes to my sort of most 
fundamental existential question, which is, is Hillary ready for Hillary? And does she deserve time to be under the radar to do what her husband has done for eight years, travel, make speeches, write, uh, not be encumbered by the public spotlight? You saw two weeks ago she sent out her first tweet, and every single letter of her personal description on that tweet was parsed for its political meaning. I worked for these for this couple from 1992 to 19, late 1997, and I maintained friendships with a lot of people who are, who are in that orbit. And part of me, a big part of me, almost wishes for Mrs. Clinton, for all that she's accomplished, that she very much be allowed to fade under radar for as long as she wants to, even forever if possible. Well, I guess up to the last statement, the the very last forever if possible part. Um, I if could, she wants to. If she wants I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, all of us want her to, I mean, the very reason we're doing this now is to give her the time to make a good decision. If her decision, you know, she, she may go one way or another. She has not made her decision and she has certainly, you know, she's clearly not announced one. Um, and... You know, it's clear that this is this is a huge commitment for anybody to make, not least of which, you know. So, uh, you know, she has already accomplished so much. Many people say she doesn't need to do any more. She, she's already served her country. She's already made her contribution. She's already put women's empowerment on the map. She's already done all these incredible things. She could anoint the next generation woman. She could, and she already has. I mean, if you look at the people she brought to state and, frankly, has supported through both political, social, NGOs, and others, she has done that. But beyond that, you know, so then the question becomes, if she were to have decide to do it without something like a Ready for Hillary PAC, what kind of position would she be in to actually succeed then? Um, today's political world requires very broad engagement. It's not just about it's not just about raising money. It really isn't. It's really about engaging through social media. It's about having the list. It's about understanding who your base is. It's about having volunteers on the ground. I mean, we're trying to learn the lessons of 2008 and make sure we don't make the same mistakes. I have no doubt we'll make other mistakes, but, you know, in this case, at least to be smart about learning from, you know, what, what, what some of our, uh, you know, admitted mistakes were in 2008. And we believe this is one of them, that we want to have a well-established ground game, and this gives us a chance to help do that so that if and when she chooses to run, and it's an if at this point in time, I want to make sure everyone's clear that we're not saying she has done, um, Except you know, she herself says TBD in a sort of winking way. Well, uh, although that's the way people have interpreted it, it may not be true at all. Uh, people can interpret that however they want. I can't, you know, I can't tell you I know anything more than you or anybody else who's who's read that um, knows. But but we want to make sure that if and when she decides that she's not in any kind of uh, that she can't take her time. In fact, and that she can take the time to rest. She can take the time to be a private citizen for a while. But the other point you made about you know not drawing attention to it. Look at she's Hillary Clinton. No matter what she does, there will be attention there. Okay, so um, and uh, and appropriately so. I mean, this is a woman who's been one of the leaders, if not the leader of our time as Americans. So um, we should be paying attention to what she's doing. We should be paying attention to what she's endorsing and 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 their policies, you know, uh, 
positions and her speeches and so forth. So whatever else happens going forward, I mean, she is going to have attention with or without us. We, we, we are not the ones who have brought attention to her. If anything, the opposite. People are interested in us predominantly because they recognize that, you know, she's a person who matters. She's a leader who matters. And, uh, and they want to know what are the possibilities that, you know, that there will be a positive outcome here. You're very careful to create the appropriate and, and legal distance between what a PAC is and a person who lives in Chappaqua, New York, and goes out and gives speeches. Um, and yet, you know, I look at your website. You're, you not only are you getting some uh, very prominent Democrats to uh, to personally endorse the Ready for Hillary PAC, people like Claire McCaskill, people like Jean Shaheen, people like Wesley Clark. But within your circle of advisors also are included people like Harold Ickes and Craig Smith. And so I, as we're sitting here and talking in Aspen, Colorado, I can't imagine Harold and Craig, with the networks they have, aren't fairly clued in about what Mrs. Clinton's asked. Uh, thoughts may be about what to do in a few years. Well, let me comment on that. Um, I haven't had a recent conversation with Craig, but Harold Icke spoke at the first event at my house in Georgetown, my home in Georgetown. And what Harold said is that he hopes that she makes the right decision. And from what he was saying, it almost felt like, you know, he was hoping that she would make sure to take her health and all her personal considerations into serious um, consideration before finalizing a decision. So I would say that... um, I don't know that Harold is privy to something, and I think that whatever he may be privy to, he, you know, his position is very much the same as ours, which is that we don't know what she's going to decide, but uh, we're the, here to support her, whatever that is. Okay. So last thought, uh, knowing what you know, or at least uh, uh, being able to look at the horizon, what do you think the odds are that she runs? Well, the way I like to answer that question is to use the current parlance. Have you ever known a woman to lean in more than Hillary Clinton? I think she is the leader of our times, not just the female leader of our times. I, when you look at her experience, when you look at the issues she's led on, when you look at what she's accomplished through each step of her career, um, I think that there are very few uh, future candidates who will be able to demonstrate the breadth, depth, and accomplishment that Hillary Clinton um, will be able to um, demonstrate. So uh, should she choose to run, I think there are going to be, there's no one better positioned than she is right now uh, to to take that on. Shelley Porges, co-chair of the National Finance Council of the Ready for Hillary PAC. Thanks a lot for joining us on Polyop. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.